Today, we are in the third week of our series called To the Scattered, a series where we're walking through the first letter of Peter, or First Peter's is perhaps better known. To some of us, we're taking our time with it because there's a lot of interesting stuff in this letter, and sometimes it's good to just take a leisurely stroll through scripture. And so today we're finally going to pick up chapter, uh, finish out chapter one. We will pick up the pace a little bit so we won't be in this for a decade. Um, so if you have your Bibles, grab them. would always encourage you to bring them if you can. Uh, and we're going to read verses uh, 13 through 25 in chapter one. It'll also be up here on the screen for you, however, if you would like to read along on the screen. All right, first Peter one, verses 13 through 25. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. It says, therefore... Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord, oh, it endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. All right, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 25. All right, so the very first word in our text today is, is very important. And if we don't pause to let it really, really sink in, then we will inevitably end up turning all the words that follow it into bad news instead of good news. And what could be more tragic than that? And this very first word in verse 13 that we need to let sink in is a very simple and unassuming word, wasn't it? Remember the word? Therefore, the word is... Therefore, now, as you'll remember from, you know, middle school grammar, I'm sure my mom taught English. Um, therefore is what part of speech? Does anyone know? Wow, my mom would be very disappointed in all of you. Um, therefore is an adverb. That's an adverb. And in particular, it's, a, it's an adverb that communicates a causal relationship. So therefore means A causes B or because of A, therefore B, if you want to switch it around. And so... As you probably noticed on our first reading through these 12 verses, these 12 verses that we just read, they have a lot of demands in them, don't they? Did you pick up on it? I counted seven in 12 verses. We'll read through them again. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely. Don't be conformed. Be holy. Conduct yourselves in fear. Fervently love one another. Now, I don't know about you, but these strike me as some fairly demanding demands. Anyone else? I know that a lot of you are, you are better people than me, sincerely. I'm not your pastor because I'm the best person here. This is just the role I've been given to play. A lot of you are better people than me, and so maybe these things don't sound that difficult to you, but they sound very demanding to me. Just take the last one, right? Verse 22, fervently love one another. 
Now, I know that some of you, bless your hearts, man, you're people people who like people. Raise your hand if you're a people person who likes people. Oh, y'all are precious. Um, my wife is one of these, these people people. She loves people. Oh, y'all, my wife likes people so much, and she's been such a good balance for me over the years because I don't. <laughs> Let me walk that back a little bit, okay? Um, it's not that I don't like people. It's just that I find all people, self very much included in this bucket, pretty annoying. Any of the rest of you, I find people pretty annoying person. Yeah, it's like the great philosophers Elaine and Jerry once said, I will never understand people. They're the worst, right? This is the motto that a lot of us live by, right? But you know what? Man, maybe you are a people person. Bless your heart. So the demand to fervently love one another, that sounds great to you. But I bet one of those seven demands doesn't sound so great to you. Or you know what? Maybe you're one of those just absolute moral cub scouts. I know there's a few of you. You ruin the curve for all the rest of us. And so you're like, no, you know what? All these demands are great, man. I love all of them. I'm for all of them. But scripture contains a lot more than seven commands. And sooner or later, right, this uh, tower of commands in Scripture will begin to loom over you so high that it blocks out the sun, and it exceeds your capacity for compliance. And it's right here when the pile of Scripture's commands is so high that it starts to look like really, really, really bad news for you and me that the word therefore comes to the rescue. So in our text today, the word therefore is there to remind us that all of these actions that we're about to be demanded to take, all seven of these, are grounded and predicated upon the action that God in Christ has already taken. All right, I want you to remember back to last week, verses three through 12. Dave preached a great sermon. He walked us through what God in Christ has already done. Do you remember it? I will reiterate it. It says, by his great mercy, he's called us to be born again according to a living hope. He's given us an indestructible inheritance. He has protected us by his own eternal power. In fact, what God and Christ has done for us is so comprehensive that sometimes it's helpful to think about it the other way and to just ask yourself, what has God in Christ not done for us? And the answer is, of course, Nothing. Because he's done everything. He's created us, died for us, forgiven us, redeemed us. Because when Jesus Christ hung on the cross with his last words, he said, you remember in John's gospel, what did he say? It is finished. By God, Jesus meant it. He meant that there was nothing else that had to be done because in Christ he had already done everything. And so it's only after reminding us that God in Christ has already done it all that Peter confronts us with this very demanding list of demands. And that's because Peter wants to make it clear that what he's teaching us here is, as our Lutheran brothers and sisters might say, it's gospel and it's not law, okay? It's an important distinction because whereas law says, hey, if you'll do blank, then God will accept you. Gospel says, hey, because God has always already unconditionally accepted you, I want you to do blank. Make sense? All right? And um, we get ourselves, y'all, into so much trouble when we accidentally turn the gospel into law. And we do it so easily that we usually don't even realize that we've done it. And it's usually the most moral among us who do it. And the surest sign that you have made the really serious mistake of turning the good news of the gospel into law is that you begin taking yourself way, way too seriously. Now, against my best wishes, both of my boys love baseball. 
It's a very sore subject for me. I grew up a basketball boy, so I do not understand it. But here we are, above the ball field, five nights a week. And uh, with the exception of not enjoying practicing in 129 degrees in late August, <clears throat> um, my boys love everything about baseball, man. They love the camaraderie, the teamwork, their buddies on the team, the pursuit of physical mastery. Little boys love to do that. The accessories, I had no idea how many accessories there were in baseball. Now, we have so many sleeves in our house, all y'all. It is really quite embarrassing. My son had six necklaces on today. It was really embarrassing. Um, yeah. Um, and, and they love playing in like official baseball games. They do, they love it. But it's become really clear that the one thing that they enjoy more than competing in official baseball games is playing pickup baseball with a tennis ball in the cul-de-sac with their friends. 6.30 every Monday morning, that, that's what they're doing, right? And I want you to think back to your childhood and whatever it is that you love to do. And I'd be willing to bet it was the same thing for you too, right? And that you never felt more, more joyful, more at peace, more at home in the world than when you were playing something that you loved with your friends, with your buddies. And that's because there's something about play that strikes this really deep chord in every one of us, right? You can feel it being struck right now. And that's because to play at something is to do something important without taking it too seriously because the stakes have been lowered. Great theologian Karl Barth, he pointed out that play is actually a very theological category because it keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously. Because here's the deal. Um, if you take the gospel really seriously, which you should and you better, then you will find it very difficult to take yourself very seriously. It's kind of a one or the other sort of situation. Because if you take yourself really, really seriously, okay, and you're always getting all worked up about how things are or aren't going according to you and how holy you are or aren't according to you and how holy everybody else is or isn't according to you, how dire our situation is or isn't according to you, then that means that you're probably not taking the gospel seriously enough. Because the gospel proclaims that every last one of us is a sinner, is a stumbling, bumbling fumbling, moral clown show. That's what you are. Is an ethical delinquent incapable of impressing the one judge to whom we are all accountable. And yet, even though this is categorically true of every single person who has ever lived, who has ever walked the face of planet Earth, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Not once we got it together. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And as he hung there on the cross with his dying breath, he said what again? It is finished. It's done. There's nothing else to do. All of which is to say that the gospel, y'all, it, it opens up this playful space for us where we are able to do some really important things. Like live your life. What could be more important than that? But we're able to do so knowing that the stakes have been lowered because God has already done everything that has to be done. And so you can dress it up in the most pious rationalizations possible. And I have heard them all. <laughs> I just want to be holy. I just want to be sanctified, whatever the case may be. But really self-serious people are typically guilty of taking themselves more seriously than they take the gospel. And that's a really big mistake. 
because they're guilty of acting like their destiny is in fact de facto in their hands. And I hate to break it to you, but if your destiny is in fact in any way in your hands, you are in so much trouble. You can't wrap your brain around how much trouble you are in if your destiny is in any way in your hands. But thankfully, it's not. And so you know what that means? You not only have uh, you know, an opportunity, but you have a theological obligation to lighten up a little bit. Some of you in your little notepad, you write, lighten up, verse, question mark, right? Some of you lighten up a little bit. And this is why the great Karl Barth, he talked a lot about play, and he argued that Christians should understand themselves first and foremost, and I love this little phrase, as God's little children at play. When all is said and done, that's what you and me are. And you know what this sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like something Jesus said one time, doesn't it? You remember? Jesus said we have to become like children if we want to enter our Father's kingdom. And so the therefore of verse 13 is God saying to us, hey, What I'm about to say to you, these demands, they're important. They're very important. But they're not ultimate. Because you see, what's ultimate is me and not you. And I have got you. Which means that you are free to play. To do some important things, yes. But to do so with a sense of humor and a sense of joy. Instead of a sense of dread. Because the world is in my hands, not your hands. So we're one word through. We'll pick up the pace. So therefore... Because God in Christ has unconditionally accepted you, all right, here's some important stuff that we're demanded to do. Roll up your sleeves. Let's get ready for it. First off, what does he say? Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This first phrase is more literally translated, gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that a fun phrase? I love that phrase. Gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, As most of you are, I'm sure, aware First century people did not have a lot of choices when it came to performance wear fashion. Um, No anti-racist Lululemon yoga pants. No no dry fit joggers. You know, they only had tunics. That's all they had, they had tunics. So if you want to do some manual work in a tunic, you had to gird that puppy up, get a little high knee clearance. You need to run hurdles, whatever it was that they did in the ancient world. I, I don't know. But you need to do that. And so this is the image that Peter is evoking with this phrase. He's saying, hey, gird up the loins of your mind because God has called you to get it together up here. To have a mind that's prepared for action, that's ready to go. And we need to clarify here immediately that girding up the loins of your mind, it's not about you've got to be a genius or some genius theologian or academic, okay? That's a gift some people have, but that's not everybody. More generally, it's about having a mind that is prepared for action because it has been trained to dwell on whatever is true and good and beautiful. Reminds you of something Apostle Paul said, right? Philippians 4 verse 8, you remember this one? He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So think about what you think about and how you're thinking about it. Because if you're constantly thinking about frivolous, stupid, self-absorbed stuff, then you're probably gonna become a frivolous, I'll leave out the middle one, self-absorbed 
person, right? You probably will. And so instead of sitting around, man, just, gosh, I see so many of us do this, cognitively fantasizing, daydreaming your life away about some life you wish you had or some icon or idol that you've got, be it a culture war grifter, some fashion icon, whatever is right. Just maybe think more about Jesus. I promise Jesus is more interesting than anything Ben Shapiro or Kim Kardashian has said. I promise you. And if you do not find Jesus more interesting to them, I promise that's on you, not Jesus. Think about what you think about. Because what you desire is in many ways, man, that's the most important thing about you. And what you desire is deeply influenced by what you think about. And this brings us to verses 14 through 16. We'll read them again. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Now, holiness is a very important, very biblical, and very misunderstood concept because a lot of us have been taught to think about holiness primarily in terms of like separation and moral cleanliness, right? To be holy is to be as separated from sin as possible. It's to be as morally pure and clean as possible. But when we think about holiness in that way, we usually end up acting like what I would call moral germaphobes, right? Like, like the Pharisees were always scolding Jesus for hanging out with those terrible sinners too much. The, the great novelist Flannery O'Connor once described moral germaphobes as people who want you to measure your sins with a slide rule. Now, I know like six people in here know what a slide rule is, and so that's for, that's for those of a certain age in the crowd. I always walk around going, oh, is this sin? This looks like it could be sin. Let's really be careful. Make sure it's not sin. It looks like it's a little bit of sin here. But to think about holiness this way, it's to miss the heart of what holiness is really about. Because holiness, properly understood, it's not primarily about separation or moral cleanliness, but rather holiness is about devotion. Okay? Holiness is about devotion. Holiness is less about avoiding naughty things, and it's more about desiring the right things. Notice that in these verses we just read, let's go back to them. We are told to be holy instead of what? Instead of being conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. So in other words, to be unholy is what? It's to have ignorant lust. It's to desire the wrong things. It's to have disordered desires. And so that means that holiness is what? Well, holiness is not primarily about not doing bad things and not having disordered desires, but rather holiness is about having properly ordered desires. It's about you being somebody who wants the right things. For example, holiness in marriage. And what could be more important than that? Holiness in marriage is not primarily about not Flirting with other people, not looking at pornography, not cheating. Now, to be clear, all those things, pretty good idea to not do, right? But holiness is not primarily about any of those things. Rather, holiness in marriage is about being devoted to your spouse and thus committed to cultivating a healthy desire for your spouse. I know that a lot of us in here today struggle with pornography. The, the numbers are astonishing. I shared with you before that I struggled with it for such a long time in my life. From the time I was like 14 years old to 20. And in my experience, um, it's almost an impossible addiction to break so long as you think about pornography as a kind of bad thing that I probably shouldn't do. 
but rather holiness, uh, pornography's grip on you is broken when you realize that it ruins your capacity for devotion because it ruins your ability to desire your spouse in the right ways. All that to say, holiness is not the avoidance of sin so much as it is the pursuit of devotion. It's a positive thing, not a negative thing. This is confirmed by what we just read in verse 22. Let's go back to it. All this text is of one thought here. Peter says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And so seeing as how holiness and purity are very closely related concepts, right? To be holy is to be pure. To be pure is to be holy. It shouldn't surprise us to see a very similar thing here, right? Peter says that they have been obedient in pursuing the purification of their souls. Sounds pretty serious. Why have they done that? Why have they purified their souls? What does he say? So that they can fervently love one another. That's the reason they pursued purity, so that they can love each other. And so once again, we see it, that purity is not an end in itself because the goal of purity is not separation and moral cleanliness, but rather the goal of purity is this rugged, long-suffering commitment to love and care for your fellow sinners. That's what purity is. And this is why the moral germaphobe rule followers will always have a tough time with Jesus. They always did, they do right now, they always will because Jesus saw holiness primarily as a devotion to sinners, not a separation from sinners. That make sense? This is what always got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees. Like, Jesus, you can't hang out with those people, right? They're morally contagious. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, do you know who I am? You think I'm worried about their sin? You must not know what I'm working with over here, baby. Jesus believed that his holiness, his purity, his truth, beauty, and goodness was more contagious than anybody's sin. Which also makes me think Jesus would say to a lot of us, moral germaphobes sometimes, hey man, um, do you know who I am? And do you know that I have put my spirit in you? In which case, what are you so afraid of? I promise that what I'm working with is more potent than what anybody else is working with. You don't need to be afraid. Now to be clear, last I checked, none of us were Jesus. So, you know, you do need to observe proper boundaries and there are all, all sorts of moral rules that are good and they need to be followed. Moral rules like don't sleep with somebody unless you're married to them. That's a good one. People come up to me all the time with alleged exceptions to this rule and I'm like, mm, no. The rule's still the rule, man. <laughs> it's a good one. Abide by it and it will go well for you, right? But if you're pursuing biblical holiness and purity solely by pursuing your own ethical hygiene, then you're not pursuing biblical holiness and purity because biblical holiness is about us, not you and your hygiene. I love the way New Testament scholar Catherine Gonzalez puts this. She says, if we seek only our own holiness, this doesn't lead to a holy community, but rather to members who keep measuring themselves against others, feeling that they're holier than some, or despairing that they're not as holy as some. But our desire should be to form a holy, loving community. The church is not there simply to help us on our journey. Rather, we are there to help the whole community become more holy. And this is why we always have to be so careful when we use holiness as an excuse, as a justification for our desire to walk away, to walk away from a friend, 
a small group, a community, a church, because it's so easy to make holiness about us. And again, holiness is not about you. Holiness is not about you. It's about us being devoted to one another, sincerely, fervently loving one another from the heart. And that's what Peter says. And this brings us to a verse I skipped and we'll come back to because it's a very good verse to end on. Verse 17. He says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear or reverence during the time of your stay on earth. Now, there is a very negative way to interpret this verse, isn't there? Wherein we ask ourselves like, Ugh, how awful is it that our father judges us? How terrible is that? Your father judges you? Oh, this is everything that's, that's wrong with Christianity. There's always this undercurrent of judgment. And, and I get that thought, man. I have had it before. I, I've shared before that questions like that have made me doubt my faith in various seasons. But I, I remember one day, it was a little less than a decade ago, having this epiphany wherein for whatever reason, the, the emphasis in that thought was just swapped a little bit. And instead of asking myself, how awful is it that my father judges me? I remember thinking instead, how awesome is it that the judge is my father? And it's a really simple swap of emphasis there. Maybe it doesn't do anything for you, but man, it did everything for me. Because it rid me of this delusion that I had some right to call God Almighty, creator and sustainer of all that is the eternal and living God, Father. I don't have some right to call God Almighty Father. I don't have some right to do whatever I want. And when I let go of that delusion and sense of entitlement, then I am freed up to be gratefully astonished that the judge is my father. When we accept that, we are freed up to then be God's little children at play because that's what we are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, creator and sustainer of all that is, Lord of the universe, our judge and our redeemer. We come before you and we confess, God, that we are not entitled to call you Father. That it's a great gift that you love us and that you care for us and that you have made a place and a very good future for us. And so we come before you in these moments as your little children at play, and we ask that you would, would help us. I, God, I think in particular this morning that you would help us to remember that all these very demanding things you have indeed demanded of us are all rooted in the fact that you have already done everything on our behalf. And so while our lives are very important, the stakes have been lowered because you've already done it all. And the world is in your hands, not our hands. And rather than that making us passive or irresponsible, it actually liberates us to be joyfully active and to do what we've been called to do. We pray that you would make us a holy community. God, that we would see, though, that holiness is not just about not doing as many bad things as we can, but it is about being devoted to our fellow sinners. Because that's what holiness is for you. It is your devotion to find a way to be with us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.